peace be to you. Because the subject of grace is so very important, it might be well to continue it a bit here and then to tell you how that grace is communicated to us. Grace divides the world actually into two kinds of humanity, the once-born and the twice-born. The once-born are those who are born only of their parents. The twice-born are those who are born of their parents and also born of God. One group of men are what might be called natural. The other, in addition to having nature, also share in a mysterious way in the divine life of God and in his thoughts and in his love. Grace is so very sensitive that it is possible for us to reject it many times, even during the day. Let me therefore tell you two incidents about grace. On one occasion, I went down from Belgium to Paris to preach a sermon in a church of Paris on the first Sunday of February. I stayed in a tiny little hotel near the Opera Comique and in a small side room there was an Englishman playing a piano. I listened to him for a while and then complimented him and invited him to dinner. He said, I have never eaten with a priest before. And I said, well, we are just like anyone else. If you stick me with a pin, I will bleed too. In the course of the dinner, he said, I have a problem I would like to present to you. I have never met, he said, in my life, one good man or one good woman. I thanked him for the compliment, and then he went on to tell me that just a year from this coming 12th of February, over at that table there, indicating a table in the corner, he saw a woman trying to break a lump of sugar into a cup of coffee, he went over to her, broke the lump. She then told him how cruel her husband was. And he said, come and live with me. He said, I'm now tired of her. I get tired of them all after about a year. And I wrapped up all of her clothes this morning, left them with the concierge and told her to leave. But she left me this note. And the note read that if you do not continue living with me, I will commit suicide by throwing myself into the Seine. Now, this is my problem, he continued. May I allow her to continue living with me to prevent her from committing suicide? And I said, no, you may never do evil that good may come from it, but in any case, and what is more important, she will not commit suicide. It got to be late. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going up to Montmartre. He said, I was just beginning to think that you were good. Now you're going up to that hellhole of Paris. I said, there's something else on the hill of Montmartre besides dives and dens. There was the beautiful basilica, the Sacred Heart. 
where there are hundreds of men every night in prayer and in perpetual adoration of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Come with me. We went up together. He said, how long will you stay? I said, I intend to stay all night. But I will leave when you want to go. He stayed all night. And I suppose there were about 800 to 1,000 men spending the night there in prayer. When we left the next morning after I had read Mass, he said, this is the first time in my life I ever came in contact with goodness. He asked me to stay in Paris for a few days and teach him. I arranged to meet him that night. At the appointed hour, he came into the courtyard with another woman, not the woman involved in the story. And he said, the three of us will go out to dinner. I said, no, tonight I want to see you. Then I called him aside and I said, now, you received a great grace yesterday. You got the first dim contact with goodness and love and holiness. And tonight you have to make a choice. Either you're going out with this woman or you're going out with me. Which will it be? He walked up and down the courtyard for a few minutes and then came back to me and he said, Well, Father, I think that I'll go out with her. And that is the end of the story. Now, these impulses of grace that he received could have developed him into a saint. But it was like the story of our Lord looking over Jerusalem. I would, thou wouldst not. Now, let us take another incident. I used to do a great deal of parochial work in St. Patrick's Church, Soho Square, London, England. I opened the church door one cold epiphany morning in the month of January. The limp figure fell in. It was a young woman, about 23, 24 years of age. And I said, how did you happen to be here? She said, I didn't know where I was, Father. I said, oh, Father. Yes, yeah, she said, I used to be a Catholic. But not anymore. And I said, but why are you here? You seem to be a little bit intoxicated. What are you running away from? She said, from men, each of whom thinks that I love him. And I didn't know that I was here. I asked her her name. When she told me, I pointed to a billboard on the other side of the street. And I said, is that your picture over there on that billboard? Yes, she said, I'm the leading lady in that musical comedy. Since she was very cold... I made a cup of coffee for her and told her to come back before matinee. She said, I will on one condition. 
that you do not ask me to go to confession. I said, very well, I promise you not to ask you to go to confession. She said, I want you to promise me very faithfully that you will not ask me to go to confession. I said, I promise you faithfully not to ask you to go to confession. She came back that afternoon before matinee. I said, we have a beautiful Rembrandt and Van Dyck in this church. Would you like to see them? As we walked down the middle aisle, I gave her a gentle push into the confessional. I did not ask her to go. But she went to confession. She is now a nun in a convent of perpetual adoration in England. And here are two stories of responses to grace. In both instances, the human will was free. In the one, there was a correspondence. In the other, a rejection. We receive millions of these graces called actual graces. Everyone receives them. You need not be a Christian. Every Muslim and every Buddhist, every communist in the world receives actual grace. But here we're speaking of what is called now a, an habitual grace, a more permanent grace, that which creates in us a likeness that remains. And that brings up this particular problem. How is this grace communicated to us? How does it get into the soul? Perhaps you've seen signs on roadways. They are often painted on rocks which read, Jesus saves. Yes, indeed he does. But the very practical question is how? We have a span of 20 centuries between the life of our Lord and our days. Yes, he is God. But how does he pour and infuse this divine life and power into our souls? Well, he does it by what are called sacraments. Now here we define the word sacrament in a very broad way. In Greek it means mystery. But a sacrament is any material or visible thing that is used as a sign or a channel of spiritual communications. We will go back about as far as we can to explain mysteries. We might say that the Lord made this world with a sense of humor. What do we mean by a sense of humor? We mean he made it sacramentally. We say a person has a sense of humor if he can see through things. We say a person has not a sense of humor if he cannot see through things. We say he's too thick. Now, God made this world with a sense of humor in the sense that we were always to see him through things, like the poets do. We would look out on a mountain and think of the power of God.
on the sunset and think of the beauty of God on a snowflake and dwell on the purity of God. Notice that we would not be taking this world as seriously as do the materialists to whom a mountain's just a mountain. A sunset is just a sunset and a snowflake is just a snowflake. The serious-minded people of this world write only in prose. But those who have this penetrating glance of perceiving the eternal through time, the divine through the human, have what we call the sacramental outlook on the universe. Now coming up a little bit closer to our own experience, there are certain signs and events in our daily life which are a kind of natural sacrament. Take, for example, a word. A word has something audible about it and at the same time something unseen, invisible. If, for example, I tell a joke and if it were a very amusing one, you might laugh. But if I told it to a horse, a horse would not even give a horse laugh. Why? Because you get the meaning. That's because you have a soul, a reason, and an intellect. The horse lacks that spiritual perceptive power and hence does not get the meaning. So with a handshake. Handshake is something visible, material, fleshy, there's also something spiritual about it, namely the communication of greeting and welcome. Now, if I take my right hand and lay it upon my left, as I am doing at this particular second, this is not a handshake. It has the visible aspect about it, most certainly namely the clasping of hands, but it lacks that invisible element which is the communication of personal warmth. A kiss is a kind of sacrament. It is something visible and at the same time something invisible, namely the communication of love. This is getting a bit away from the point, but I just cannot resist saying it. Have you noticed how very much our modern architecture is devoid of all decoration? What a contrast to the cathedrals where there were all material things, even cows and angels, sometimes little devils peering around corners. The ancient architecture was always using material things as signs of something spiritual. But today our architecture is flat 
Nothing but steel and glass, almost like a cracker box. Why? Well, because our architects have no spiritual message to convey. The material is just the material. Nothing else. Hence, no decor, no significance, no meaning, no soul. I wonder if decor and decoration and so forth in architecture has not passed out of the world at the same time politeness has. We certainly are not as polite in this century as we were in, the, in another century. And possibly the reason is because we no longer believe that persons have souls. They are just other animals. And hence they are to be treated as means to our ends. But when you believe that in addition to a body there is a soul, uh, then you begin to have great respect and reverence for personality. Now after that digression on the relationship between architecture and politeness, we come back to the very important point again is how do we ever, ever contact the life of Christ and his grace? The basic idea that connects all that we have said with him is this, that Christ himself was the great sacrament. Because he was the word made he was the God-man. We would have seen a man, but we would have known that he was the Son of God. Therefore, Christ is the supreme sacrament of history. His human nature was the sign of his divinity. We saw God through his body. We see eternity through his time. And the loving God in the form of a man who was like to us in all things save sin. Now our blessed Lord took his human nature to heaven. Once he is glorified in heaven, as we said in speaking of the ascension, he is our mediator, our intercessor, our high priest, who can have compassion for us and on us because he passed through our temptations and our sufferings and our trials. Because he is God as well as man, he is going to pour down upon us from heaven his truth, his power, his grace, his life. And how will he do it? He will not do it through what we might call his bodiness because that is already glorified in heaven. He will do it through things and also through human natures. 
He will use certain things in this world as extensions of his glorified body. These things might be water, bread, and oil, and so forth, as channels or vehicles for the communication of his divine life. Now, he himself instituted these sacraments. But why did he do it? Well, first of all, because his life is so very rich that it has to have various manifestations in life. It is very much like the light of the sun. The sun is so very bright that if we are to understand its inner beauty, we have to shoot that sunlight through a prism. And so, and when we do, it splits up into the seven rays of the spectrum. And so our blessed Lord, having a life that is infinitely rich, shoots this divine life through the prism of the church and it splits up, not into the seven rays of the spectrum, but into the seven sacraments of the church. And then another reason why he used sacraments was because this material world of ours has to be spiritualized. God not only redeems man, he redeems things. So we lay hold of material things like water and oil and bread and so forth. And we make them serve God. Too often they've been used for purposes that were not divine. We have a body, too, as well as a soul. And we get all of our spiritual thoughts, at least the beginning of them, through the senses. And why, therefore, simply because we have a body as well as a soul, should God not use things that appeal to our senses? some material signs, which would be to us telltales and revelations of this grace that he's pouring into our souls. For example, it would be wonderful if he used water to indicate that our great sin that we inherited from Adam was being washed away. Bread would be a very good sign and symbol of nourishment. Oil strengthens us in the natural order. It might also be a very good sign, too, for strengthening our souls. So as once divinity used humanity, so now divinity uses humanity and things in order that there might be something trans-historic transcosmic in order that there might be the divine life of Christ pouring into our souls. That is how the Christ in heaven contacts us in this day and age. How many sacraments are there? Seven. Why seven? Because there are seven conditions for leading a physical life and there ought to be seven conditions for leading a spiritual life. Five of these conditions are individual and two refer to society. In order to live a physical, natural life, one, I must be born. Two, I must 
grow to maturity. Three, I must nourish myself. Four, I must heal my wounds. Five, I must drive out traces of disease. Then as a member of society, one, there must be a propagation of the human species, and two, there must be government. Now over and above this human life, there is the divine life. And there are seven conditions of leading that divine life. If I am to live the Christ life, I must be born to it. That is the sacrament of baptism. Two, I must grow to maturity and accept the responsibilities of life. That is the sacrament of confirmation. Three, I must nourish myself sustain this divine life, that is the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. For I must heal the wounds of my soul caused by sin, that is the sacrament of penance or confession. Five, I must drive out all the traces of the disease of sin that are found in my senses, that is the sacrament of the healing of the sick. Then as a member of society, there must be a propagation of the kingdom of God, the growth of the mystical body of Christ. That is the sacrament of matrimony. And finally, there must be divine government. There must be holy orders or the sacrament the episcopacy, and the priesthood. Now the reception of the grace that is in these sacraments is very effective in our soul because it is Christ that confers the grace. The mere fact, for example, that we turn on a faucet, water comes out. The water does not come out because we subjectively believe that water will come forth. And the divine life of Christ is poured into our soul by the mere fact that we receive the sacrament. Of course, we must not put an obstacle in the way of receiving the sacraments, but it is Christ who baptizes. It is Christ who forgives sins. There are ministers, of course, there are bishops and there are priests, but we alone, Christ, our eyes and our hands and our lips, it is he who gives the grace. That, incidentally, is why, even though you received a sacrament from an unworthy priest, it would still be a sacrament because the sanctification does not depend upon the priest because sunlight comes through a dirty window Sunlight has not polluted. A messenger may be very ragged, but he could still bear the message of a king. So you see the church, the mystical body of Christ, takes care of you in the cradle of the grave.
It meets you in all of the events and circumstances of life. And your sanctification does not depend upon our preaching. It depends upon Christ himself. This is the sweet mystery of life. The sacrifice.